Now we're going to do a little POV. You're a juror here in the prosecution's case. So <laughs> jumping forward, this is what the prosecution argued um, when trying to convict Purvis as being responsible for the murder of um, Lacey Joe and Sharice. And I guess we'll find out what's going on. Well, does Nick survive? Did we already talk about that? I can't remember. Yeah, I remember. Remember, he goes to Lundbrunn Children's Hospital. I couldn't Hospital. remember if that was later on because we've recorded this so many times. I know. Stop. <laughs> so anyway, POV, POV, <laughs> we're moving forward. Point of view, you're the prosecution. And this is the argument that was presented by the prosecution. So they claimed that the police found Purvis in the attic of Sharon Nathaniel's house. Again, that is the ex-girlfriend um, or her apartment, excuse me, I misspoke, and that he was hiding in there. When they arrested him, he wasn't wearing a shirt or shoes, and the only thing he had on was pants and a gold Hellbro's watch. His pants, his body, and his watch all had blood all over them. So I guess he was just doused in blood. Sweating blood. The first thing that he said when they arrested him, quote, man, I ain't killed no woman, end quote. And one of the officers said Payne had a, quote, wild look about him. His pupils were contracted. He was foaming at the mouth, saliva. He appeared to be very nervous. He was breathing real rapid, end quote. Just as a little side note, I feel like anyone that just removed a knife from someone's throat and then gets afraid that they're going to be framed for the murder would probably be a little nervous breathing be rapidly keep in mind that he just ran sprinted away and like i don't know like the, it all makes sense it's the middle of summer and also he's a black man yeah. who like saw a brutally attacked white woman and it's a white police officer like no shit he's going to be terrified yeah so it all makes sense that he ran. It makes sense that he was afraid, both because he understands the implications of his race and as a black man, like the likelihood that he gets accused is far greater than if he were a white man. And so it makes sense that he would flee the scene and that he'd be a little nervous upon them finding him. But anyways, moving forward, as I mentioned, he was covered in blood and he wasn't wearing any clothes except for that gold watch and pants. So this is where it gets interesting or where something a little fishy is happening. As you remember from earlier, Kate, and I'm sure the listeners will as well, I'm going to remind you either way. When Officer CEO and first showed up on the scene, uh, Purvis had hit him with his weekender, dropped it, and ran off. Police reports later, and this was also used by the prosecution in court. Police later reported that they found his weekender in a nearby dumpster with his white bloody shirt as well as a bloody blue shirt. Um, and so just so you guys understand like what Kate's thought process was when she was doing this research, I'm going <laughs> to read you a direct quote from the notes. It says, and I quote, but also how the fuck did he dump his bag? Is Officer Owen said that he dropped it after he whacked him with it? End quote. One nonsensical two you can tell that she was angry when she was writing this and three you kind of get the gist of what she's saying it doesn't make sense it doesn't add up if he dropped the duffel according to officer ceo and he dropped it but now according to police reports and the prosecution they found it had been like dumped in a dumpster so something isn't adding up because also he must have dumped it then in the apartment complex correct because that's where they found him. And then, so what? He's going to go back to the apartment complex when all of the police are there, like, doing whatever they do to a crime scene to pick up his bag and then jump it in a dumpster? That makes no sense. Yeah. There's something is inconsistent, for sure. Mm-hmm. But anyways, they arrest him, and the police obviously, like, searched him and found in 
in his pockets a syringe wrapper, the cap from a hypodermic syringe, and papers in his pocket that tested positive for cocaine. So remember earlier we told you to highlight the fact that he picked up those papers. And so he again claims that the papers weren't his, um, and there was no prior evidence that he used drugs. No police report mentioned that he appeared to be on drugs when he was arrested, aside from the um, what's it called when you give it? the statement? Aside from the statement that was later on given in during trial for the prosecution side, there was no indication or like report or mentioning at the time of the arrest that he had appeared to be on drugs. Um, and the best part that <laughs> the cherry on top of this, I guess, is that his mother, Bernice Payne, begged the police to administer a drug test to him to prove that they weren't his, that he wasn't doing any drugs, that he wasn't on drugs, but the police refused. Again, what the fuck? Just what the fuck. That's all. <laughs> That's it. What the fuck? So the prosecution said that he had spent the morning and early afternoon injecting cocaine, drinking and driving around town with his friend who was driving, and they both took turns reading a Playboy magazine. Yeah, you're muted. Sorry, I'm snacking. Um, I might just be done. Can you inject cocaine? What does that mean? I don't know. I'm going to, should I do a little Google search? Yeah, do a little Google. Okay. The first search result was, can you inject coconut water? I guess if you're hungover and you need like an IV drip. When you leave the Georgetown hospital because you've had alcohol poisoning and you need an IV drip. Oh, fuck off. You can inject cocaine. Okay. Well, that's news for me. That is, um, also that source is AmericanAddictionCenters.org. So thank you for clarifying that for us. Dot org, you know it's accurate. Yeah, right. Okay, but also I was going to say, like, they were both taking turns reading a Playboy magazine. Like, I feel like that is bizarre. I hate when they include information like that because it's so irrelevant to any, like, actual, it's just like, that's just one of those things where they're like oh if we include this information like people will think that like he's like converted like I don't like it's just an information that's not necessary but it's just used to paint the person in like a bad light to make them more prosecutable well exactly and that's like what we're gonna get to it we'll get to it don't worry don't jump the gun the prosecution claims that he went to the apartments around 3 p.m so the timeline is still pretty accurate and he saw Sharice and all of a sudden just decided that he would start making sexual advances towards her. And she rejected him and he flew into a violent rage and killed them all. So that's apparently his motive. So my thoughts on that too are that at this point in the story, we've introduced three different women in his daily activities. If he was interested in like getting some sort of like getting something out of Sharice sexually it's not like he had no other he visited his ex-girlfriend exactly swung by a female friend's house and he was going to go see his girlfriend who had been away for a week like it it doesn't really make sense to me at least that he like gets there after stopping in multiple times and now is suddenly like oh I'm actually really in the mood to just go to town yeah The state claims that Payne's baseball hat was snapped on Lacey's arm near her elbow and there were three malt liquor cans with Payne's fingerprints found near Lacey's body on the table and a fourth one, four, empty can was on the landing. So remember I said remember three? Yeah. 
Somebody explain that to me. Where's that extra one coming from? Did it teleport there itself? We don't know. I'm confused. <laughs> I'm raging. I know you are. I can see Kate is like, <laughs> the blood you can see is visibly boiling. Oh my God, I just heard you swallow. That was such an ASMR thing. Oh God, that freaked me out. I thought there was going to be someone standing behind me. <laughs> if, if he, so let's say like those three malt liquor cans were his, which presumably they, it was because they had his fingerprints on them. That means that whoever did actually do it, whether it was Hawaiian shirt guy, whether it was Purvis Payne, like whoever did it had to go over to the duffel or the weekender where his stuff was, picked up those three things or those three cans. Like I know, but they were next to them. It was next to them. So it's not that crazy that if someone's going over and like, personally, if I saw like a thing of alcohol and like a bag filled with clothes, I absolutely would dig through the clothes before I even thought about taking the beer. Like, yeah. If it's a cute hat. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like that sucks, but leave it out on a company. Like, I don't know. Shoot your shot. Like, we'll just like keep on remembering the alcohol. Just keep it. Just keep it in there. Okay, so it's in the back of our minds. Yes, it's in the back of our minds. The alcohol was was consumed. There were four cans, not three. And Purvis Payne's hat, again, was around Lacey's arm. So here's where the little science comes in, which it was later determined that Sharice and Lacey had type blood type of zero, or O. My dumb ass, when I read that, I thought it was blood type zero. <laughs> Turns out there is no such thing as zero blood type. It's O. Mm, so excuse my notes so that's why I also thought I should read it because there's so many typos um and Payne and Nick had a blood type of A so a forensic serologist testified that type zero O type O (laughs) oh my god Kate type O was on Payne's white t-shirt blue shirt which was found in his bag and his sneakers and the actual bag and his pants had type A blood on them So remember when I said we're going to get back to the stereotyping? Here we go. According to the Innocence Project, the prosecution stereotyped Payne into a hypersexual black man and a violent drug user, and he killed the Christophers in a, quote, drug-induced frenzy. You know the Sun, that trashy website from the UK? Yeah. They called Payne a crazed drug addict. My favorite part about this is that the entire case is built off of the fact that he's a drug addict, but then they refuse to test him. Exactly. Okay, well, fuck that. The prosecution further claimed that the attack and the crime scene was or had occurred exclusively in the kitchen. And again, highlight that. I guess we're going to be coming back to that. Payne had marks on his chest that the prosecution claimed were scratches from Charisse defending herself. Um, but the defense had said that they were just stretch marks from weightlifting. So here's where I'm lost. What the fuck? <laughs> in what worlds do stretch marks and scratch marks look the same look even remotely similar like why i mean i'm assuming that this trial occurred over several weeks did they not just check out his chest again and be like oh did those scratch marks heal or are they still there because they're actually stretch marks but even if they were scratch marks like scratch marks and stretch marks literally look so different so different but also the, the scratches would have healed exactly so that's what i'm saying it's like they could have later on just been like oh let's check back in how are his scratches if there's if their marks are still there then i'm unless sure they're can- claiming their scars which maybe they are but how would he have scarred so quickly i don't know that's the thing okay. we well, don't know whatever that's fucking it's, we're not saying our criminal justice system is a justice system 
is foolproof because absolutely it is not. So it's honestly a toss up if it's scratch marks or stretch marks. That seems completely asinine to me that we're even <laughs> having this conversation, but sure. Okay. So according to the prosecution, Payne's fingerprints were also found on the telephone and the counter of the kitchen. So maybe he called for help. He was going to go see if he could find someone to help. Or maybe his fingerprints weren't actually there. Okay. That too. That's just me like making up wild theories. It's not like I have like really any evidence to back it up, but I mean, in my mind, like sure he didn't say that he like did that, but he could have very easily like he said that he saw her standing there, wanted to go call for help, went and like maybe he went and picked up the phone and then heard someone coming up the stairs and then went out and saw the officer. Like you don't really for sure know. Exactly. So moving on from the prosecution, the defense called four character witnesses to the stand to testify on his behalf. It was his mother, his father, Bobby Thomas, and a clinical psychologist named Dr. John T. Houston. Oh, or Huston? I don't know. I read it as Huston, but I guess it might be Houston, actually. Let's go with Houston. Huston Houston. We'll just we'll just call him Dr. John. So Bobby Thomas testified that Payne didn't drink or use drugs and that he treated her children like they were his own. His parents testified that he was a good son and he had never been arrested and didn't use drugs and didn't drink. I mean, not saying that like people that are religious don't necessarily drink or use drugs, but if he grew up in a really religious Pentecostal house, I wouldn't be surprised that he like wouldn't be abusing substances like that. And also like from what we know about him, like in my mind, I picture him as a very innocent person. You know what I mean? Like just a very innocent, like innocent as in the sense of like doesn't do any wrong really. Gentle, yeah. Yes, that's that's what and, I like, mean for innocent. Good. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm picturing like Sims when you can like pick their like character qualities and it's just. I forgot you were like obsessed with Sims. Yeah, no, I am going to play probably later today after this. <laughs> I will be for sure be completing the saloon in my, my Sims mansion. <laughs> the parents testifying that he was a good son, that he didn't abuse any substances or even drink for that matter, and that he had never been arrested. What are those malt liquor cans doing then? That's the whole thing too, is like if everyone's saying that he doesn't drink, oh, why is there liquor cans? Do we know if the liquor cans are his? So that's what I said in the beginning. Like I thought I would add it just because the prosecution said that he left it with his overnight bag. However, it doesn't seem to say that he left them there. Okay. So I'm still a bit confused on that. Obviously, I'm not like, I didn't get access to the police reports and shit, but. Right, right. That is just like a weird fishy point. Yeah. Um, Do with that information what you will, listeners. (laughs) Um, So Dr. John testified that Payne had a low IQ and was mentally handicapped, kind of like we had discussed earlier. Um, He testified that he was neither psychotic nor schizophrenic and that he was the most polite prisoner he had ever met. The IQ test that Dr. John had admit just to clarify again his his first name is john where i'm calling him dr john because <laughs> i don't want to mispronounce his last name um but it's dr john houston huston anyways the iq test that the doctor administered to purvis came back that he had a verbal iq of 82 plus or minus three and a performance iq of 82 plus or minus four so i don't really know much about iq tests like what is standard that seems pretty low. Kate, do you know anything about that? Um, okay, well, also I want to say, too, that, like, when we say, like, quote, mentally handicapped, that's, like, what it said in the transcripts. And it also – or not in the trans- – like, this article I read, and it also said the R word. They said, like, mentally R. And I didn't – and then it said, like, that's not known as politically correct anymore, so we call it mentally handicapped. Like I said, I'm really not as well-versed in the correct words 
that I should as I should be so sorry so basically like the norm quote for IQ is about 100 to 110 so like it used to be 100 but I guess now it's like moved up to 110 historically quote mentally handicapped is determined to be 75 so if you score like a 75 then you're like historically considered mentally handicapped okay so he was like probably legally not deemed deemable as mentally handicapped but it's his scores are indicative that there was some like lesser intelligence level or something like he had some um yeah wait you do know that you put your name as s-i-o-g yeah i know i, I it was an accident and i just didn't care I didn't think it was relevant do it to it so dr john let's just say the doctor Okay, the doctor said on the stand. Also, when I was talking about this case, just a side note, I kept saying on the stage. On the stage? (laughs) Yeah, like on the stage. Not sure why, but anyway. On the stand, the doctor said, quote, he was actually lower intellectually than I had anticipated, and he is low enough that I consider it significant. So important to note that Dr. John said that MMPI, a test that he gave Mr. Payne, apparently has a racial bias to it, and so that may have altered his results. So during the trial, Payne testified, quote, I saw the worst thing I ever saw in my life, and like my breath had just had, had took in, just took out of me. She was looking at me, end quote. Quote, she had the knife in her throat and her hand on the knife like she had been trying to get it out, and her knife... And her mouth was just moving, but words had faded away. And I didn't know what to do, end quote. During the trial, DNA testing of the evidence was unavailable, obviously, because, like, we didn't have the science back then in 1987. But since the trial, none has ever been done. Did they collect any evidence, or, sorry, any DNA on the scene, or? We'll get back to it. Okay. So on February 16th, 1988, he was convicted of first-degree murder on two counts and one count of assault with intent to commit murder, and he was sentenced to death by electrocution. In the penalty phase of Payne's trial, the prosecutor told the jury, quote, but we do know that Nicholas was alive, and Nicholas was in the same room. Nicholas was still conscious. His eyes were open. He responded to the paramedics. He was able to follow their directions. He was able to hold his intestines in as he was carried to the ambulance, so he knew what happened to his mother and baby sister end quote quote there is nothing you can do to ease the pain of any of the families involved in this case there's nothing you can do to ease the pain of bernice or carl Payne, and that's a tragedy there's nothing you can do basically to ease the pain of mr and mrs vlonic and that's a tragedy they will have to live with it the rest of their lives there is obviously nothing you can do for sharice and Lacey joe but there is something you can do for Nicholas, end quote. So during the impact of murder, the docuseries on ID discovery, Phyllis Gardner, the district attorney at the time said, quote, our intent was to see how these murders affected Nicholas, end quote. Basically, the whole reason I'm telling you guys this is because you're not, you were not allowed to have a victim impact statement. You know how you can have those if there's a rape case or if there's sometimes like a murder case. So if they're choosing between life and death, you're not allowed to have a victim impact statement because if you have a victim impact statement, you're like you and you hear about how good the victim was and the victim's character, then obviously the death penalty is going to seem like a better choice, right? You might want to keep going because I have a lot of things that I don't get. So just finish your thoughts. Okay. Okay. I'll keep going. So base. Okay. So basically the idea is that when you have, um, 
a sentence and the jury is choosing between life and death, the prosecution is not allowed to have a victim impact statement. So a victim impact statement is just to say like how the murder or the rape affected the victim or the victim's family. And you're not allowed to have somebody come up and talk about the victim's good character in terms of a death penalty situation, because that would lean towards like a bias of some sort towards the jurors to inflict the death penalty because, oh, the victim was such a good person, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So, but that ended up hurting him in this case. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Because they wouldn't, they wouldn't let Nicholas. That was my question was like, if Nick was conscious and was like able to physically hold his, sorry. I know. I know. Hold his intestines as he's being carried to the hospital after watching his mother and his sister get brutally attacked and murdered. I would think he was conscious enough during the attack to be able to identify Purvis as the attacker or not, no? Well, okay, so this is the whole thing. I don't know if I wrote this in the notes or not, but I'm just going to say it. So in either the Sun newspaper that I read or the ID Impact of Murder docuseries, I can't remember which one, one of them, Nicholas was like, I don't remember seeing the attacker, right? But then in the Impact of Murder docuseries, Angie, which remember is Sharice's sister, she was like, Purvis Payne's mugshot came on the TV on the news and Nicholas said that's the man who killed mommy and Lacey have we ever gotten any sort of statement from Nicholas himself no so he's only spoken out once about it and it was only in that impact of murder docuseries so we're gonna put a question mark in that one because that's a bit confusing so the state called Mary's Vlonic to the stand Nick's grandmother and Sharice's mom and she testified that Nick missed his mother and baby sister quote he cries for his mom he doesn't seem to understand why she doesn't come home and he cries for his sister Lacey he comes to me many times during the week and asks me grandmama do you miss my Lacey? And I, I tell him yes. He says, I'm worried about my Lacey, end quote. Purvis appealed his death sentence because the prosecution's closing argument violated his Eighth Amendment right under Booth versus Maryland and Carolina versus Gaithers because you're not allowed to have a victim impact statement for a death sentence case, like I said before. So he appeals it, and the Tennessee Supreme Court said the prosecution's comments during the closing argument were, quote, relevant to Payne's personal responsibility and moral guilt, end quote. They concluded that any violation of his rights, quote, was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, end quote. So they basically were like, it doesn't matter. They had a victim impact statement. Like, nope, your rights weren't violated. No one could see my face right now. Also, that's what everyone should be freaking out about. Like, your constitutional rights are not violated because you're forced to wear a mask. They should be, you should be freaking out that his constitutional rights were violated. I just, like, I don't even know what to say. I just think it's fucked up that they're like, oh, well, like, the only thing that's been deemed beyond a reasonable doubt is the fact that his rights weren't violated. Like, where's the fucking reasonable doubt in this entirely circumstantial case? Yep. Like, there's absolutely no incriminating evidence of any sort. Following that appeal, Teresa's mother says that she take for knowing that Payne was sentenced to death, which is, like, I don't know, kind of fucked up, I think. I think so, too. Obviously, neither of us know what we would be feeling if, like, somebody that we were really close to was brutally murdered in such a way. Yeah. My mom's like, well, somebody murdered you. Like, maybe I'd take comfort knowing that they'd be sentenced to death. But, like, this is the thing about the death penalty is, like, you you just can't have it because it's not 100% accurate. And there's flaws in it. So you, like, simply, like, there should not be a thing as the death penalty. Like, it, you just can't have it yeah. in a broken criminal justice system like we have. I agree. I also think, too, like, I mean, there have studies done that have proven that it's actually more expensive to sentence people to death. Like, they're going to probably spend the majority of their life rotting in prison anyways. And in my opinion, I think that that is a far worse punishment than sentencing someone to death. Like, if I, if my options were spend the rest of your life in prison or die, I would absolutely rather die. But also, it's like, our prison system in general is just a fucking disaster. Yeah. 
both from like in terms of like actually like what is a viable punishment I think it's far worse to like rot in prison but then yeah also from the lens or through the lens of like as you said it's impossible to have a system have the death penalty in a broken justice system yeah this is still such a prevalent problem in 2020 there's absolutely no way that this trial both just from what we've seen so far in today's episode but also just based off of what we're seeing now in today's day and age like there's absolutely no way that this was a just fair trial but also it's like I I think I've said this before like I hate calling it like a broken justice system because it's not broken because it, it never was good and then broke it's always been bad yeah like you know what I mean like it was always made this way but I also think like nice. I'm gonna go off on a rant like a fucking rant about our prison systems but like if you look at most other countries you know they have rehabilitation centers rather than prison so the prison system is not how it is here and the rehabilitation works and it has a much higher success rate of people not reoffending than ours does here but anyway that's my a rant for maybe another episode yeah I think we we finish out this one first then revisit that maybe we might just have an episode of me ranting about it you never know I mean we could make a whole other podcast called well we'll come up with that later <laughs> but just a podcast of us ranting I mean yeah <laughs> um all right, so moving on. So in a 6-3 ruling, the court reversed its two recent rulings and said that juries choosing life or death can consider the victim's character and the suffering of the family. Payne filed an appeal with the Tennessee court, Supreme Court on April 8, 1988, and in April 1990, the court had quote-unquote affirmed conviction and sentences. Now, that's like the background on everything and now we're going to get into where we are today. So POV 2020. POV. It's year the world ended. <laughs> so here's where we are today. Shelby County, which is where Millington is. The DA, Amy Weirick. Weirick. See, I put, I put a Weirick. little. You oh see that? God, you put it there. I know. Great. Okay. Let me start over. The district attorney, Amy Weirick, and she is opposing DNA testing even though the DNA exists in the case. So there is DNA that can be tested, which is far more sound than any of the circumstantial evidence, but the DA, Amy, this bitch, is refusing <laughs> to test it. Literally don't know why. Um, but in a press conference, I guess we'll find out. In a press Wait, conference, can, I, can I read this quote? Because I literally yeah. laughed out loud when I read it, when I listened to it. Okay. Okay, so in a press conference that Amy Weirich did about, like, retesting the DNA, she said, The court said in a 2006 opinion, let's assume for the sake of the argument that the DNA testing would come back and it would have somebody else's DNA on it, DNA on it right? So what? The state was still going to prosecute Mr. Payne because the evidence of his guilt was so overwhelming and because someone else's DNA on a piece of clothing doesn't mean anything. We don't know when it was left behind. There's no st date stamp with DNA. End quote. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> this is my thing, too, is, like, when people say shit like that, there's nothing else that, like, I don't read that and think anything other than this bitch is lazy. Like, she just doesn't want to do her job. She doesn't want to have to go and, like, open the case back up. Like, doesn't want to have to, like... And she doesn't want to give their attorney's office or whatever a bad name. Yeah. For fucking up. Oh, yeah. Also, just jumped ahead. I was reading. So, 
I had been meaning to ask. Yeah. So where the ex-husband kind of comes into it and like what is there was there a lot to say about like what the relationship was like or what like why they split up or was it still ongoing? There are other suspects like her ex-husband is a big one Kenneth Christopher and he was very abusive to her physically mentally and emotionally. He was excluded at the time of the murder as a suspect because he was serving a sentence for aggravated assault. So I tried really hard to google it. I definitely put a virus on my computer probably um looking up state records um and I couldn't find anything so I don't know who the aggravated assault was against um and I feel like it might not have been Sharice because I feel like they probably would have put that in the media reports if it was against Sharice so that's just me you know context hypothesizing yeah so he was serving his sentence at the Fort Pillow Penitentiary which was a minimum security prison and an employee later admitted that the, it was not uncommon for prisoners to leave during the weekend and go about their, you know, shit um, with no consequences. So his alibi can't really be accounted for. So you're telling me, just to clarify, that this prison <laughs> had less security than my boarding school. Um, That's what I They grasped. could leave on the weekend. I had, at boarding school, I had to sign out when I was going to town yeah. to buy, like, gum. So you're telling me that a prisoner could just be like, I want to go see that new Avengers movie. I'm just going to, I'll be back, maybe, and I'll see you guys later. It's like sleepaway camp. But because the fact that his alibi cannot be accounted for, I would assume that there was no sign-out sheet. Like, there was literally no repercussions of them just fucking leaving. So how, I mean, I'm, <laughs> what if it didn't come back? I don't know. Like, I actually don't know. Okay, right. Well. Like, I, I'm just as confused as everyone listening to this. Like, right. what? For aggravated assault, too? Why the fuck are you in a minimum security prison? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well continuing on I guess so there was also a drug dealer that's considered another suspect that Sharice apparently owed money to and that was like literally all the information that I found on that interesting did Sharice have a drug problem we don't know that was like legitimately all the information I found also that's interesting that it was a drug dealer that Sharice apparently owed money to and the pieces of paper fell out of the man oh true who was seen running away contained drug paraphernalia i didn't even think about that yeah okay yeah that seems true. more incriminating against this other unknown suspect yeah that's so true definitely i didn't even think about that damn this is why we, this is why we needed two of us all right so purvis is currently 53 years old so remember he was 20 at the time that this happened so he's been in prison for 33 years now and he's set to be executed December 3rd, 2020. In 2002, the Supreme Court ruled executing people with intellectual disabilities to be cruel and unusual punishment. And that was deemed um, in Atkins versus Virginia in that case. And again, keep in mind that where his intellectual disabilities were proven via those IQ tests that were performed and by Dr. John Houston, Houston, Huston whoever whatever it may be dr john and so i think this also took the fact that his story hasn't changed since the day he was arrested until now he's maintained the same story and i think that's also pretty indicative like it's hard to go 33 years we said without even like a minor hiccup in the story that you're delivering i don't know 
Especially because if you're lying about it and you say like one lie about, I don't know, like a very simple lie, but it's like critical to the story and it's very like little, you would definitely forget about it if you fucking lied. Yeah. Like I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And like you see that in criminal justice like cases all the time when people continuously lie and then they keep getting caught in their own lies. You know what I mean? So it's like if his story hasn't changed. Yeah. It's in a lot of the cases, in a lot of the cases that we've listened to, like that's always been a pretty key yeah. factor and kind of poking holes in the person's story and like even the little details, like mm-hmm. what time they arrived there, how many times he went back and forth. Like, why wasn't he like, why didn't he go into the friend's house when he like tried to stop by all of those little things? Yep. He does have a new lawyer though. Um, and her name is Kelly Henry. She stated that the Shelby criminal court clerk staff refused to give her evidence from the case without a court order, and she called this, quote-unquote, unprecedented. And then they later were able to get a court order, I presume, only after she basically deemed that it was, like, problematic or tried to argue them on it. So that seems a little... Yeah. I mean, I find issue with that. Wait until you read this because you're literally going to scream, so... So in the evidence compilation from the file, I'm assuming, from the case file, yeah. That they were given. They were handed a bag of blood-stained blood stained <clears throat> blood. <laughs> it's okay. They were handed a bag of blood stained bed sheets, comforter, and pillow, something that was not introduced into evidence during the trial. So the defense didn't know of its existence. This is what his new lawyer told Kelly Henry told the appeal that it's quote, not on our list. It's not on any police reports we've ever seen. We were floored. End quote. From my understanding, my very limited understanding of um, the way trials work, aren't you supposed to declare all evidence that's going to be used or introduced in the court case and, like, evidence that's used to compile a case? Yep. Yep. Okay. So, another problem. (laughs) Um, As mentioned, the prosecution always said that the crime scene was exclusively in the kitchen. I forgot about that. Yes! So what were the bed sheets and the pillows and the comforter doing there? Okay, also, like, I didn't know, like, okay, because I think that you could probably poke holes in what I'm about to say, but I'm still just going to say it because, like, I'm not a crime scene technician. I don't know what the deal is, but I saw an evidence photo, and I don't know if it was just a random evidence photo from whatever, like, just as, like, the photo in the article or if it was an actual photo from the crime scene. Mm-hmm. There was literally a shoe. It was a crime scene shot of a shoe next to a fucking mattress. What does that mean? So basically I'm saying like, why are they taking a crime scene photo in the bedroom then? If they're saying that it's exclusively in the kitchen. But I don't know. Do they take crime scene photos of every room in the house? Wait, what do you mean a shoe? Whose shoe? It doesn't matter. Like it was just like a picture of a shoe next to a mattress. Oh, so they, yeah, that's weird. So they like went in, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like you can definitely poke holes in what I just said, but I just thought I should add it. Okay, so what was the question you said? Was there a lot of blood? And it didn't really say, but I'm going to assume. No, well, here's, here's what I was going to say. Well, I'm just like finishing the food that's in my mouth. What I was going to say is, and like this is probably a little far-fetched, but thinking back to that tampon that they found. Oh my God, why do you keep jumping ahead? Because one, I'm a fucking genius and I just know that things have to come full circle, but 
What I was going to say is, is there any chance that the blood on the sheets was like... Oh, I see, like period blood. No, I don't think so. I think there was much Mm -hmm. more. It was like too much to be period blood. Because I feel like period blood is much more of just like a small stain. You know what I mean? Like it's not like... Okay, that's why I asked. Okay, sorry. So again... They, the prosecution had always maintained that the crime scene was exclusively in the kitchen. But Payne's attorney wrote, quote, he came upon the crime scene simply because his girlfriend lived across the hall. He heard a noise and went to help. He was overwhelmed by what he saw. He panicked and ran. His actions were that of a scared, intellectually disabled 20-year-old. There is nothing in Mr. Payne's background before or since that is consistent with the sort of person who would commit such a crime, end quote. And I... Couldn't agree anymore with that statement. Yeah. That is entirely more damning to me than, or not damning, but more indicative of his character, like everything that he did up to that moment and everything that he did after. And like, to be honest, like if I walked into an apartment and I saw someone had been stabbed, I don't think my first thought would be like, let me try to go help. Like I would fucking run the other Mm -hmm. way. And maybe that's fucked up of me, but like, I don't know, at least from his statement, like, he seems like he was genuinely trying to help, and he grew up in a Christian family, he, like, was dating a girl who had three young kids, was a single mother that viewed him as, like, a father figure in their life, he was, like, well-regarded by his family, by other people, he was, like, mentally a little, or intellectually disabled, I just think if we're gonna start relying on circle, circle, on circumstantial evidence, which seems to be the, the entire case underlying, yeah, like justification for this entire case is just circumstantial garbage. But yeah. if that's what we're going to use to fucking prosecute him, shouldn't we then also be allowed to stand here and say, well, he was Christian? Like, if you yeah. can be like, yeah. well, he had drug paraphernalia on his person, so he's a drug addict, then you can be like, well, he was the son of a minister, so he must not be capable of murder. Like, it's just, you can go in any direction with these sweeping assumptions. Well, and also, like, you, we say this, like, everybody says this all the time. Like, you literally don't know how you're going to react in a situation like that. Like, we can sit here and be like, oh, my God, we would run the other way. Or, oh, my God, we would help. Or, oh, my God, we'd call the police. But you fucking don't know until you're actually in that situation. And then how your body's going to react. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, that's definitely something that, I feel like has been a pretty consistent theme across all true crime is like, you don't know how you're going to react. And so it's hard to, I think it's hard to hold people accountable for their immediate, like adrenaline induced reactions to things. Exactly. Okay. So in a December 30 filing, which was filed as like an opposition to set an execution date for pain, his attorneys wrote that the prosecute, the prosecution's theory was quote, concocted out of whole cloth and based on an outdated racial stereotyping. They said that the state's narrative of the homicide was that a sexually predatory black man high on drugs brutally murdered a white woman for rejecting his advances, which is literally like, I can't. If you don't know why that's problematic, then I don't know what to do for you. Like, I'm sad for you, but okay. <laughs> like, I'm genuinely sad for you and I don't like you. No, okay. I agree. Said they found the tampon actually two days after the killings not when they found the bodies and, quote, does not appear in any crime scene photos or video taken on the day of the homicide, end quote. Wait, I feel, like, deeply unwell now. I, like, actually now feel, like, not to 
steal the one-liner from Brit or girl from Crime Junkies. Hashtag, this is not an ad. But that actually did just give me full body chills. Like, that made me feel so unwell because, one, like, it would have been creepy if it was, like, oh, any piece of evidence just, like, appeared in this murder scene two days later. But something about the fact that it was a tampon, like, actually makes my skin crawl. I know. I know. Ugh. Okay, ready for this now. So is there any anything that, like, explains what the fuck this tampon, like, where this tampon came from? No. No. They didn't even, like, look into it. Did they test the blood on the tampon? No, because they won't let them have the DNA testing. Okay. Well, sure. Honestly, why the fuck not anymore? Like, this whole case is such a shit show, I'm not even surprised. (laughs) The petition also states, quote, the kitchen where the victims were found was covered in blood, including on the walls and doors. The minor amount of blood present on Mr. Payne's clothing is inconsistent with him being the perpetrator, end quote. Which also, like, I didn't even think about that when I read it. But that's true. You know? If there was so much blood, he should have, like, he should have been, like, legitimately, like, drenched in blood like Carrie you know when they dropped the blood on her at the prom or whatever that's what he should have looked like I have not seen that movie but okay well anyway my bad so (laughs) Sharice had sex with her boyfriend Daryl Shanks the day of the murder but the evidence was never presented to the jury so I guess that's like important to think about the acid yeah in her vagina because it seems that she had sex earlier that day so this is this is the real kicker. This is the one that gets me. Wyrick says that the new evidence isn't connected to Payne's case, and it was from a 1998 crime scene in Memphis, like the comforter and the bed sheets and the pillows. However, Henry asked the staff multiple times to make sure that was part of the evidence in Mr. Payne's case. Wait, I'm confused. One more time. So basically, so Wyrick, Amy Wyrick, yeah. she was like, oh, the, like that evidence, the, ble- the blood-stained comforter and sheets and pillows is actually not from... Um, Payne's case, it's from a crime scene from 1998 in Memphis. However, when Kelly Henry went to go get that new evidence, she was handed this bag and she was like, are you sure this is from the case? And they were like, yes. And she was like, are you positive? Because like, we had no idea this existed. And they were like, yeah, like it's from this case. But why Rick is like, no, it's not. So where do you, where does that leave us? Who do we believe? That leaves us with like, okay, like what? Like that leaves us with like, how (laughs) that leaves us with how my thoughts too are just like like I don't even know my brain is like turning a million miles a minute I don't know yeah I mean what the fuck no that's just (laughs) and so like you said Henry Kelly Henry the new attorney claims the police tampered with crime scene evidence and moved the victim's bodies wait 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 why do they think that they moved the victims bodies and so I didn't get any more information on that but obviously like we're podcasters well that's what I was just about to say is like we're not podcasters so obviously I'm not privy to information as such yeah but I'm going to assume that they have some pretty good supporting evidence to say such a well, thing I mean, you know what I mean pretty fitting with what I had just last said so DNA testing on the tampon you said it's not going to happen yep um and what about like testing of the weapon a rape kit none of that is going to slide but the, is it going to happen? So they want that. Well, so why Rick has to approve it, I guess. I hate this bitch. Okay, well. I know. Um, he's also seeking to have fingerprints from the crime scene checked against the FBI and Tennessee Bureau of Investigation de- databases. Database? 
whichever you prefer. Um, <laughs> Payne claims he was denied effective assistance of counsel. Can you walk through what that means? So basically that means that like he was denied a good lawyer. So obviously this happens all the fucking time with like court appointed lawyers. I'm sorry if you're a court appointed lawyer, but they're overworked. They're underpaid. And, and so trained, right? No, I don't think they're under trained. I think they're trained the same. I just am thinking from like all of those like shows where they have a court court appointed lawyer and the guys like an. I think I think it's just because they're so overworked. They're so underpaid. They have like I oh my god, I know that there's a crazy statistic about how like at any given time they have like I want to say it's like a hundred to two hundred cases. Like, at any given time. Like, it's ridiculous, yeah. Maybe that's not right. Maybe it's less, but I wish I knew off the top of my head, but I don't. Um, But so basically, he's just saying that, like, he was denied having a good lawyer. Like, his lawyer didn't do everything she could to to present evidence properly, to present that there was a reasonable doubt, um, and things like that. Okay. Uh, So his previous request for DNA testing in 2006 was refused on a Tennessee Supreme Court ruling that was overturned in 2011. His case meets the requirements for DNA testing under laws of the land. Interesting. So you legally can get DNA testing, and they just won't let it. It appears that way. How the fuck is this country a functioning place? I don't know. I, like, actually don't know. A really sad point to mention is that Nick still has scars from the attack. The main one starts at his sternum and goes down to his belly button. I actually saw, so while we were, like, filming this, I did a little search, and I saw the picture of his scar. Really? Oh, well, I just saw, like, um, it was on that sun, the sun, like, that trashy. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah, I did see that. And what I'm also confused is it seems as though he is also now trying to say that he... So, yeah, now, well, just this article that I'm reading, it seems as though he, like, now is, like, suddenly... Let it out. I can take it out if it's wrong. <laughs> Interesting. So, sorry, I keep reading things. So, according to The Sun, Nicholas, in a recent interview, said that he couldn't make out the face of his mother's attacker, but that he could see his mo- his mother being held by him and she wasn't moving. So, that completely honors the point that Sharice's mother made that he had said like, Oh, at the mugshot. No, Angie, this, the sister, the sister, Angie made that point. Oh, the sister. Okay. So that completely undermines the point or the statement that the sister Angie had made while Nicholas was too young to be used as a witness. It was clear he had got his, they had caught his killer. Angie explains I was looking up for Nicholas when the news came on the TV, he saw Purvis and said, He's the man that killed my mom. Oh, okay, so I messed up. Okay, it was the son that she said that. It wasn't the impact of murder. I messed up, my bad. Well, the son was, like, based on the impact of murder, so. He had been under the influence of drugs and alcohol and had killed Sharice in an intoxicated rage. Right. Because they know that just by looking at him, that he was the influence of drugs. That's That's literally so fucking stupid that they just like contradicted those literally three sentences down he said he didn't see the person's face couldn't identify him was too young and unwell and blacked out to be a witness but when he was watching tv when he was three after this whole traumatizing thing happened he saw the man's face on the tv and was like oh that's the man that did it whatever also another thing really quickly another point i just want to add is like there's a very high likelihood, too, that he just happens to recognize... If 
Purvis was dating, like, as we know that Purvis was dating Bobby, is that her name? His neighbor, like, it's, it's not that, like, outlandish for us to expect that a little kid who, like, probably doesn't interact with that many people would recognize his next-door neighbor's boyfriend. Okay, well, also, one of the articles I read... I don't know which one it was, but it was, and I didn't seem to include, I didn't want to include this because it was only mentioned this one article, but basically they were saying how apparently Bobby Purvis and Sharice all became really fast friends. That what? That Bobby Purvis and per- and Sharice, I almost said Paris, Sharice all became friends. So like they like knew each other, but I didn't like, I don't know how accurate that is because it was the only time I ever found that. That's interesting. Damn. I'm so nervous. Okay. Um, so Kate and I had some technical difficulties. We're still trying to buff out those scratches <laughs> in terms of figuring out how these systems work. Um, so don't judge us. Yeah. Sorry if this seems a little disconnected. We're recording this about a week and a half later on me. That's my fault. It's okay. Anyways, um, so I think where we left off, Kate, do you want to refresh me where we were okay yeah so the last point we made was you were reading the sun article about um nicholas's scratches or not scratches oh my god scars Scars. on his belly button (laughs) they aren't scratches they are serious scars oh yeah and those pictures okay yeah so and how they like contradicted themselves okay right okay now i remember so we had just been talking about kind of contradictions within the case um and especially with regards to DNA testing. So something that's pretty interesting but also terrifying um, is that the Shelby County District's attorney office has a history and a reputation for not allowing DNA to be tested when the question of innocence is present, which I feel like that's especially when it should probably be. Should be tested. (laughs) tested i mean not only before you imprison someone but especially because i i don't i don't know what the testing was like when this case happened well also too i think i got that probably from the innocence project website but something that came up from that was that there was another girl whose father she said was wrongfully convicted in the shelby county refused to dna test him and he was on death row and so (laughs) They killed him. Oh my god! Without testing the DNA, and so she's pissed, and so she still wants it to be. Yeah, I know. So that would be like an interesting case to dabble in if we. Wait, he actually got executed. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to do that. Maybe a little special feature episode since. Because there was like underwear or something in it in the case that had DNA on it, and they could have tested it, but they refused. Especially for a case, I feel like that's capital punishment. Why do you want to kill someone if you're not 1,000% sure? Why do you want to kill someone? I mean, I have my opinions on capital punishment, but whatever. Anyway, so. Isn't that, like, illegal? Like, I don't understand. Capital punishment? No, like, isn't it illegal to just be like, okay, well, we have evidence and we have the signs to test it to exonerate you or not exonerate you, make our case more solid, but we're not going to do it. Yeah, but that's the problem is that the justice system, as we've said, is imperfect, one, and two, the political hoops that you have to jump through is just bullshit. Like, it's, I mean, and also, if you look at today's current political climate and 
I don't want to get too political in this podcast, but... Oh, I will. <laughs> I, yeah, I'll let you take that role. But I will say <laughs> that just based off of what we've seen in the past few months, it doesn't seem that outlandish that rights could be violated in, in such a manner. No, but that's what's so fucked up is that we're just kind of like, okay. You know what I mean? Like, we're so just, like, like used. Yeah, like that we're almost numb to it. Yeah. yeah. Not numb, but used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and so just to add to Shelby County District's attorney office um, or Shelby County in general, they're um, rapidly accumulating rap sheet. Uh, they also have 50% of the Tennessee population on death row. So the way Kate has written this is extremely misleading. (laughs) What I understand she's trying to say is that 50% of the population on death row in Tennessee was convicted in Shelby County. Yeah. Kate has written it as if 50% of the people that live in Tennessee are currently on death row. Which could be possible. (laughs) Seems a little high. <laughs> Seems a little high. It could be possible with how <laughs> relaxed they give it out. So you never know. Yeah, right? that's true. Good point. Okay, so now we're going to go on to like some statistics that are startling. <laughs> okay, so Shelby County is among the 25 counties in the U.S. with the most recording lynchings from 1877 to 1950. So that's pretty concerning, and that just shows a history of racism. Embedded into the community. Yeah. 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 Do with that what you will. Um, Okay. So then just like in the United States in general, innocent black men are seven times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of murder than innocent white people. Um, Studies have also shown that a victim's race plays into the likelihood of the death penalty. And almost 300 black people accused of murdering a white person have been killed by the state since 1976. And when I say killed by the state, I mean sentenced to the death penalty. Um, that's 14 times more than the number of white people. Is that the state of Tennessee or like when you say the state, do you mean like the government? No, the okay. U.S. Yeah. The government, okay. sorry. Um, okay, so that's 14 times more than the number of white people killed for murdering a white person. Damn. It's kind of a shitty leaving off point. But I guess it leaves our listeners something to digest and think about, Yeah. Some food for thought. I mean, hopefully everyone will be a little bit outraged by this story and feel motivated to do something about it. Racism is still extremely prevalent in our society, and you can donate and get involved. Sign petitions. So if you, like, even if you don't believe that he's innocent, like, you definitely should believe that he should get a new trial and DNA testing. And if you don't, then, like, please fucking turn off our podcast and don't support it. Thank you so much. But... If you, you should sign the petition that he needs to get a new trial and a stay of execution. The petition will be in our Instagram bio at Big Girls Don't Crime. So sign it. Have fun with that. And then also we should leave off that since we mentioned domestic violence in this episode, if you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, the national hotline is 1-800-799-7233 and it's available 24-7 to support survivors. Nice. And so with that, I guess we'll sign off. What's our sign-off? I don't know. We still have to, like, think of that. Yeah. If you have any tips for what our sign-off should be, 
Leave it in the comment section below. Make sure to like. Below. We don't even know if we're going to have a comment section. And subscribe to my channel. Ring that notification bell. I know. I'm just kidding. I'm just. We have no idea what it's going to look like when it gets like uploaded. We have no idea what it's going to look like when it gets made. Like I'm thinking about the jokes that I'm making now and I'm like, those are good. And they might just get cut or something I said. I'm like, fuck, why did I say that? And it might end up in there. No, don't worry. If it's more of a fuck, why did I say that I've cut it out? So don't even worry. Okay, great. Were there a lot of those in there on my part? <laughs> there was a lot of you being like, uh, so I had to cut that out. Oh my God, really? Yeah. <laughs> like so much. No, that's yeah. so embarrassing. Oh my God. Oh my God. What do I do? Don't worry. I cut them all out, but that's why it took me so long to Wait, do it. Wait, this like, if this doesn't improve my public speaking, then I don't know <laughs> what I'm going to do. Not that this is public speaking, but... You're in the comfort of your own home. I guess performative speaking. <laughs> We're speaking to an audience. I know, but I'm, I'm speaking knowing that these recordings are going to end up somewhere. Oh my God, I'm mortified. But it's fine because they cut it I out. I said, so. um... No, you would be like, um... Ew. Okay, so, like... <laughs> Oh, that's my thinking. That means I'm, I was I know, processing. I know, but it was like I cut most of that out, though, because it made it smaller. It made the things shorter. No, I mean, thank God. Yeah, no, absolutely that needs to be nixed, but wow. Okay, well, I'm just going to go ponder long and hard about my life, <laughs> both because of the podcast and because apparently I say um a lot. It's fine. But wait, before we sign out, sign off, we should say, make sure that you follow us on Spotify. Hopefully we're going to get on Apple Podcasts, but that seems a little bit more difficult than getting on Spotify. So we'll see. We're going to leave our sources somewhere to give credit to the information we got. We don't know where we're going to leave it yet, but we'll leave them somewhere. And like I said, the petition for Purvis Pain is going to be in the Instagram bio and you should follow us at Big Girls Don't Crime on Instagram and stay tuned for our next episode, which is going to be about three murdered indigenous women in Canada. These stories are actually, I don't want to say interesting because that just seems like the wrong word, but they're really, they're kind of crazy. So make sure you tune into those next, next week or. Did you already read it? I haven't read it yet, but I I think if you've included one of the stories that I think you probably did, I've heard it before on, um, that, our, one of our favorite podcast crime junkies we'll plug for crime junkies um but i've heard it you're welcome we've mentioned you twice in yeah. this episode have we actually i already forgot yeah i'll mention them <laughs> probably every single episode moving forward because <laughs> i'm obsessed with them um no i didn't add that one in though i didn't oh well that's awesome okay well that'll be another episode but also, like, we're having to focus on three because I literally have, like, no information on any of the cases, which is so fucked, but... Yeah, well, that's that's pretty standard. So that's all from us. This has been Big Girls Don't Crime. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune into our next episode, and we'll see you on the flip. Peace out.